It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris, have you heard my new uh, training plan for how to climb harder as I yeah. as I uh, drift like very ungracefully until elder age? I haven't, but I'm guessing that I have a similar plan because the new rifle guidebook's coming out soon. Mm. But tell me what tell me what you're talking about. My plan is to do fucking nothing and hope that routes I've sent long time ago get upgraded mm-hmm. and. Um, I think I'll feel pretty good about myself when that happens. What's the chances that's going to happen, though? Uh, it's hard to say. It depends on if some holds break or how polished the roots get, right. which, honestly, most of the roots I've done are so polished, they can't really get much more polished. So I think I'm probably screwed. Yeah, I've actually noticed that about Rifle, <laughs> is that we've reached peak polish. Yeah, it's peak it's polish. Like every hold is a diamond that can no longer be like in any way damaged or changed. Yes. So. And- and they're all um, completely valuable yeah. and special little diamonds. That's <laughs> true. Even the ones with glue all over them. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. So Flex Luther got repeated by our friend Maddie Hong, which is pretty sick. If, Some local news. Yeah. Local news. That's why we got to talk about what exactly Flex Luthor is. Because yes. it's actually a really interesting story that um, I don't think it's a worldwide well-known climb. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Flex Luthor. Flex Luthor is a, a route that Tommy Caldwell did like in 2003 at this place called the Fortress of Solitude, which one of us has had the indignity of establishing a route at. Um, <laughs> and it's basically a giant chaz pile. <laughs> you, you'll have to take that up with Tommy. <laughs> He's climbed it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The Calouse Logan. Yeah. Yeah. I've never climbed the Calouse Logan, mm-hmm. um, but it does look cool. It, it actually, uh, I think it's probably gotten a little bit bird shitty again mm-hmm. from lack of, of climbing, but uh, it's a pretty rad route, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like the one crack climb. <laughs> yeah. It's portraits. like a crack climb, except for Danny, our, our good friend Danny climbed it without actually really jamming it at all. Yeah. But well, it has strong. like a, yeah. Has a sick crack in it that I bolted, <laughs> but uh, me and Michael Logan and and actually, we'll, this is a total aside. It's the the Fortress of Solitude has mostly um, superhero type names as a reference to where Superman hung out. Is that what the Fortress of Solitude yeah, was? Yeah, I think so. And there's the Bat Cave up there. So, but then we actually uh, wanted to name this route the Penultimate Man. Yeah, see, you're not impressed. I and don't so, understand that reference. So Dave Pegg when he wrote the guidebook, decided that he thought the name Calouse Logan was better because it references a climb in the Black Canyon called the Goss Logan, very famous, actually, climb in the Black Canyon that was put up by Michael Logan's father, Jamie Logan. So anyway, that's how the name became Calouse yeah. Logan amongst all these other like superhero names like Metropolis and you know things like, and Flex Luthor and Kryptonite and... I wanted to explain that because it seems like really sort of like cocky to just name a sport route after yourself. But I had, I did not do that. Well, there's pegged it. It seems like there's lots of hyphenated Logan (laughs) routes, you know, around the West. Right. But what's the, what's the penultimate man? 
Well, you know, it's a joke because I think people use penultimate wrong and it means the second mm-hmm. highest or the second best. So it's just, you know, it's just a fake superhero oh. we made up. Oh, okay. Penultimate man. Yeah, it he's sounds like quite, a terrible comic. <laughs> he's not quite Superman. I mean, I think it's a sounds like a great comic, actually. Somebody can use that name, the penultimate man. He always comes in second, not quite first. Because you know what, Superman, that's a whole other thing, but Superman is bullshit. Like, how many superpowers do you give one guy? Mm-hmm. Like, he's indestructible, super strength, he can fly, heat ray, eyes, super cold breath. I mean, what else? He's got a million other things. I've never been a Superman fan. I just want yeah. people to know. I was always a Spider-Man person myself and, and maybe some Batman in there, but yeah. yeah, I never got Superman. I was a more of a Batman guy. Yeah. Just a normal human. Yeah. With uh, you dark. Know, dark and tech. You know, just like a, a regular billionaire who yeah. hides in the closet and <laughs> has dark secrets. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, back to Flex Luthor. Okay. Um. Yeah. So Flex Luthor is Superman's arch enemy no no it's a rock climb at the fortress and (laughs) um that tommy caldwell put up in 2003 and rated i think 14d slash 15a like he gave it a slash grade at the time people kind of since just upgraded it to 15a when they referred to it but i think it was originally a slashy well i'll just say this slash grades are bullshit so tommy should have took a stance yeah i think it well you know if you think about the time it was like you know, there was like one or two 15 A's right. in the world or something. Yeah. And so he didn't want to be, he was, he like, was from the old school. He was trying to sneak it in yeah. and not be like, Hey, I did a 15 A too. Right. I, um, I think, I feel like he was sort of pressed to just give it a grade anyway. Wasn't he? I don't really remember oh, okay. the, the anyway. exact details, but right. yeah, I do remember the slash grade being part of it. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, it was like a big deal at the time. It was like, Whoa, it's sick. Tommy's like climbing really hard. And, uh, that route just like sat unrepeated for basically the last almost 20 years. And uh, it just got done uh, two days ago by our friend, Maddie Hong. Right. So that's what we're going to talk about today, which the thing that's interesting is that 20 years later, Maddie upgrades it to 515B, which is like, you know, two and a half letter grades up or one and a half grades up. So I thought that was interesting because, Wow. Like maybe Tommy was like climbing 515B like in 2003. Mm -hmm. And if he was like just questioning how that like re, you know, kind of jiggers our understanding of climbing history and what Tommy did at that time and what what kind of recognitions, you know, you give to people in the aftermath of of having climbed 15B in 2003. So I thought that was like an interesting thing to think about. And um, I thought that could be our insidery baseball geeky armchair hard sport climber conversation. Today. Totally. And and one of the things too to sort of backtrack is part of the reason I think anyway is that it sat there. And one of the things I think is really interesting about it is it's a crag on the western slope here. It's I guess near rifle, um, but it's a you know it's a, a long approach for a sport cliff good solid 50 minutes uphill to get there bottom of it is at least it's like over well over an hour yeah probably to get all the way around where flex luther is the bottom of it is choss it's so chossy that you know we one time myself and hayden kennedy and were you on that trip or when when hall went up there we brought him up there no like he was pretty like 
visibly angry that we had brought him up there. Yeah. Like, cause it was so chossy. That would be Alex Honnold. Yeah. It would yeah. be Alex Honnold. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, any of these hard routes, the first like 50 feet of them is, is just really like tottering choss. Mm. And then you get into this gigantic overhanging thing, but also it's only good in the den of winter because it gets tons of sun. Well, that's actually not true. Really? Yeah, it's not true because it's actually a really cool cliff in this way because it's got this giant roof over the top mm-hmm. of it. And so a lot of the the main cliff where a lot of the hard climbs are, including kryptonite, um, I don't think this applies to flex luthers much, but where kryptonite is, it gets full shade all summer oh, right. because the sun is so high in the sky that it, it doesn't like touch the wall. But in the winter, the sun dips down below the roof and then it it blasted in the mm-hmm. sun. So it's, it's in a way it's like this unique kind of well-designed, you know, um, s- uh, sunshade wall. But note that it's freezing ass cold here right now. Yeah. And Maddie sent it what yesterday or two days ago? Yeah, two days yeah. ago. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. It was cloudy and cold. <laughs> it, got, and, it got chilly as yeah. fuck and that probably helped a lot. For sure. So. Yeah. So the, there is basically one, really good route at this wall and i have heard i've never tried it but it's kryptonite and it's it's obviously like a really clean piece of rock it doesn't look like there's a lot of garbage rock on it just like a blue streak really beautiful climb and that one's been you know repeated probably a dozen times or so that one's a 14d just 40 or 50 feet to the left of flex luther and um but flex luther's kind of just sat there and I know a handful of people have tried it over the years and have reported pulling off like hundreds of pounds of rock, like literally, Mm -hmm. and being like, this isn't the same route that Tommy did. And so it kind of had this reputation of being like... It was like no longer there. It was like no longer there. Right. Like whatever it was, the route Tommy did is no longer there. Or it's just like such a bad route that it's not even worth trying. But it seems like about five years ago, Carlo Traversi, John Cardwell, and, and Matty Hong, and probably some other folks who I don't know, but I, I do know that those three guys started getting interested in flex and seeing what was up with it and maybe, you know, kind of checking out that wall for other routes to bolt because they've basically done everything in rifle, so there's nothing left for them to do. And yeah, so they started trying flex Luther. I know Carlo was getting really psyched on it. And that was the first time I'd heard of anyone trying it that was like psyched on the route. It right. wasn't like this is just a bunch of chaws. So it got repeated, it got upgraded. It got upgraded, yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that it's like this kind of it's not really a domino effect, but it has this sort of effect on history. Mm-hmm. Because if it is fifteen B, then it was fifteen B and 2002 or three what'd you say it was done yeah, 2003 2003 and therefore it was first one in the u.s so if it was 15b in 2003 that would have been maybe the first 15b in the world right depending on whether you count akira which is like a you know kind of like a non-sport climb sport climb mm-hmm. or that other route chalam balam which has kind of been was graded 15C, but then downgraded basically to 15A maybe. So it could have been the first in the world. It would have been the first in the US. And yeah, so it would have been it would have been a really, really amazing achievement for Tommy to have done that at that time. 
And who knows? He probably certainly could have climbed that hard at that at that era. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you know, I think we both texted him today to just like kind of, you know, give him some friendly <laughs> or just like try to get a funny quote out of him uh was really my motivation. But you know, it's like, hey, how's it feel to climb, you know, much harder now, having done nothing. Right. And uh, you know, and he's like, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm on the beer and pizza diet right. and beer and ice cream diet from now on or something. But then he was like, seriously, like, Hey, I'd, I'd actually be psyched to go out and check out the route again and see what the moves are like, because I remember all the moves. And so he would be in a really great position to revisit a climb he did 20 years ago and just kind of get, give a thumbs up or down on whether the sequence is basically the same or if it's like really drastically different than what he remembers. Yeah, because it's just it comes down. I mean, the thing about like the hundred of po- hundreds of pounds of rock is I can definitely understand that, but it would be coming off of parts of the route you know that weren't necessarily the hard climbing. Yeah. Because I mean, any of those routes you could go up and start banging rock off of it yep. from from especially down lower towards the bottom. So, I mean, you know, you have to kind of like focus on whether or not holds in this crux sequences were breaking off to make, make the route necessarily harder. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that it would be, it kind of defies belief to imagine like big blocks of rock just being pulled off by hand that Tommy had used, you know, like I would, I would imagine Tommy just had like a very narrow vision of the holds he was going to use to do the route and Mm -hmm. you know he probably didn't bother cleaning the choss that was to the left and to the right of it off the wall i don't know if that if that is an explanation or not Mm -hmm. i mean then the other explanation is that the rock is just such a junk that over the years you know enough freeze thaw cycles have sufficiently dislodged enough rock to make actual sequences drastically different than they were um so i guess tommy would be the one to figure that out yeah i mean it's Part of me believes it because the the cliff is so chossy. Well, so do you remember that other controversy with the, Certainly. with kryptonite? Kryptonite. Do you want to tell that, or I can? Well, I mean, I have a sort of vague memory of Yuji Hirayama and Francois Legrand, who's sort of been, I don't know, at least in the U.S., like forgotten from history, but was like basically the man from France when when especially when French climbers were still like the dominant force in sport climbing. Didn't they come over on some, like, basically uh, what Tom Randall would call a wind-up tour? Yeah. Which is, like, they wanted to come over here and just, like, smack down all these hard routes in the U.S. Just to be like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Because the U.S. definitely had a long-standing reputation. Even, I think, Samet wrote an article about it, about how much we sucked at rock climbing at the high grades for a long time. We were, like, the butt of jokes until... Until our like champion Chris Sharma appeared on the scene to like <laughs> you know basically like slay the dragons. Yeah, but yeah, so I think they came over right, and they were like, "We're gonna go to to Smith, and we're gonna send Just Do It, and all these other things, and then we're gonna like this thing in Colorado called Kryptonite, which at the time 14D was like a super you know that was high high end route. They went up there and they did it, and then didn't someone accuse? them of like chipping a new hold yes to change the sequence yeah so and the defense was that they were like yeah we just got our brushes on cleaned it right yeah 
yeah, so this new pocket emerged and at some point in within the crux air sequence mm-hmm. and I don't know who I don't recall who it was that you know gave them the call out, but having climbed at that wall and having literally had that exact same experience happen where you you just you find a hold that doesn't even look like a hold and you just start brushing it and then all the sand pours out of yeah. the wall and all of a sudden it's like a giant pocket there. Um, I literally have had that exact same experience. Yeah. Like a, that not on kryptonite mind you, but yeah, that as soon as I had that experience I was like, "Oh, that story was complete bullshit. They didn't yeah. chip any hold. It was just they literally just cleaned a hole that hadn't been cleaned before." Yeah. Well, let me say this. They did not complete their goal. I think they got shut down elsewhere as well a couple times. So they didn't actually just waltz over here and send everything they, they had didn't planned smash on sending. All the hard but I think it still was kind of this like, you know, sour grapes from Americans that these guys were doing this. But yeah. the thing is that... The, yeah, they came over to yeah. America to smash all our hard roots. Yeah. They got their reputations like dragged through the muck. They yeah. didn't do all the roots that they wanted to do and then they went home. Yeah. And, and they then, made a film about it that was like one of the least inspiring yeah. films. And I think like, you know, and then Francois basically like bailed. Yeah. <laughs> disappeared. I mean, Yuji's still a giant. And that's the other thing about it is like, then you look at like, Yuji's reputation and who he is. Yeah. Just like, no, he was not up there chipping roots. Oh, totally. Yeah. There's no way. The guy is like a samurai. Like, he doesn't fuck with that shit. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So it's just kind of like this weird little mini controversy of the olden times pre internet. Cause, like, with the internet, it probably would have been like a thousand times worse. Oh, totally. (laughs) Okay. So, wait, let's get back to the the crux of this issue because. Oh, did we do our disclaimer though that grades don't matter? Um, no, not yet. We can okay. get there. All right, we'll get there later. Yeah, we'll we'll end on a note of nihilism. Um, right. <laughs> um, no, the the crux of the issue is this this like kind of geeky sports fan question that I have, which is, if at the time a sports event happens and it's in the context of the day that it happens, doesn't that record just get to stand for all eternity? And then even if your understanding or conception of of like what that means changes over time. It's still, you can't like say that, you know, Tommy Caldwell didn't do kryptonite. That was 14 D slash 15 a in 2003. And you can't say that Tommy climbed a 15 B then because one, you don't know. And then also it just seems like this kind of revisionist history that strikes me as being complicated or unfair or -hmm. something like that or maybe it's just like this impulse to not just see like my favorable understanding of history or just my my preferred narrative of of how the sport has progressed over the years change right and so i don't know if that's i i i'm really open to like what the what the best way to think about this is and i'm not sure i understand what it is yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because whether you like it or not, some of these notions are bulletproof anyway. Like even if you started beating the drum that we have to, you know, what was the is is Jumbo Love the first 15B in the US yeah. then? Right. So if you're out there like that's your stand, like you're going to write letters to the editor until, you know, the world just admits that Chris Sharma's Root was not the first. I mean, I just think you're up against it. Like we're we're just not interested. Mm-hmm. And and you know we've seen that. I think with I mean the first to do a certain grade, especially benchmark grades. You know, 15B is in the middle, but like the first 14A or whatever. 
there are other instances where those roots have subsequently been downgraded, but a lot of times they're downgraded in like the inside baseball zone mm-hmm. to where we know that everybody mumbles about like, okay, that thing really isn't 14A. Like we all know it isn't, but the guidebook keeps it that way. Mountain Project keeps right. it that way because because of that. They're right. like guarding this statistic for this climber. Right, yeah. You know, and, and so there's other precedent of this, especially in the downgrading land, not necessarily in the upgrading land. This is kind of a little bit of like more interesting territory because it's a little different. But there's plenty but of like fundamentally the same thing that have been downgraded. Yeah. It is kind of the same thing except for like, I mean, except for it's like two degrees removed. Like we have to diss Chris Sharma. Like we have to first change this and then change that. Right. Versus like the direct diss of like, well, so-and-so didn't do the first 14A because it's not really, it's 13D. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels a little different in that way. Yeah. There's there's a winner and a loser in each of right. these things because someone gets their accomplishment taken away mm-hmm. if you give someone the 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 mantle or the trophy of having done x or y first so it is it is it, it makes it like very confusing it's not a do you imagine thing. right now that like chris sharma is like <laughs> calling his people like this will not stand like he's like super gripped about it like clawing his eyes out no <laughs> he's got a whole team of pr people working well here's the interesting thing is that we've got these two climbers right if if this if we're specific this case right, Tommy Caldwell climbed the first 15B, which negates Chris Sharma's. It's like we're talking about two like winners. Right, they've, they've won. They win yeah. all the time. They get to win. Yeah, and so it feels like kind of you know like haha we can laugh about it. But there's plenty of people who you know it's like they clawed their way to this this first and and there's it was a very big career moment. Like Flex Luthor was not a career moment in the long run for Tommy Caldwell. That's true. Right? Yeah, no, he's got lots of things. Because it wasn't it wasn't even that big a deal at the time because everybody's like, Where? What? Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like on, you know, Seyus or something like that. It was in the middle of like some chossy cliff that no one even knows how to get to in Colorado kind of thing. Yeah, and it does it does make this um a little bit easier to talk about right. it because of that, because you can imagine that this isn't gonna be in Tommy's you know, he probably wouldn't put this on his resume if he had to apply to a new company to right. get sponsored. Get like Patagonia kicked yeah. him off and he had to write He's his like, resume. He's like, I climbed Flex Luther. They're <laughs> like, <15." laughs> what? <laughs> but, you know, the, the I guess the, the devil's advocate side of this is, you know, by being attached to something that maybe wasn't true in the past, you're also denying someone the the dignity and the the spot on the podium or the spotlight that they deserve. Right. So in other words, if you climb the first 14A, or you were the first, let's say, woman to climb 14A, turns out it wasn't 14A, then the actual woman who climbed 14A, like, yeah, you know, a couple of years after you did, didn't get any sort of accolades from it, well, for example. Yeah, well, let's, do- let's talk about women in 14D because that's an interesting one because Sasha DeJulian was the first North American woman to climb a 14D uh, when she did Pure Imagination, um, which has since been downgraded. And then she also did Vea, which is maybe downgraded, mm-hmm. or at least it's soft. Um, and so let's say both of those routes aren't really 14D, 
then that that title would probably go to Ashima, who did a 14D like a few years later. Right. He did two 14Ds and maybe a 15A. A what about Josune? Or... Well, just like North American. Oh, okay, North Americans, right. Yeah, Josune was, right. like, was the first woman who did right. that. But if you want to... The the upgrading thing also works. So I was thinking about Carlo Traversi repeating Beth Rodden's root meltdown, mm-hmm. which she rated 14C. And Carlo hasn't explicitly stated this, but I think he thinks it's probably 14D. And right. he's come really right up to the edge of like upgrading it to that because it took him a long time to do that route. And he's a really strong climber, of course. And he's climbed similar grades. So he's yeah. just doing a comparison. And so if that was the case, Beth did that in 2008. And so she would be the first North American woman to do 14D. And so I don't know. And not only 14D, but, but on gear. On gear too, yeah. 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 It doesn't change. It doesn't fundamentally change what we know about any of these people. That's, they're that's, all hard. I guess that's what I'm getting all, at. They're yeah. all great climbers, and and everything that they did is badass. Mm-hmm. But this is like, it just it, it's this is just like geeky, the nerd out. climby yeah. nerd out shit. Yeah. That yeah, you, it's fun to talk about. Right, but grades don't matter anyway. So they ultimately don't. They ultimately. I don't. mean, I think a lot of this, like, yeah, and then just to like undermine everything i just said once again all of this discussion kind of hinges on this conception of grades as being this objective thing like mm-hmm. this this objective thing that is outside of us in some way and that a 14d really could exist without the upgrade or downgrade or with you know or it could be consolidated in a way that it isn't questioned anymore right and it's just bullshit like right. that's that's not how grades work. Yeah. So um, in a way, it makes the whole conversation really stupid. Well, the other thing that I, I want to note, and, and you just mentioned it, and we've been talking about it, is that in the end, I, I just can't imagine a climber, I can't think of one, for whom like the whole you know, basket was handed to them just because they did the first... C D E F whatever the climb happened to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, like even though the difference between a 13C and a 13D is really the same as the difference between a 13D and a 14A, the number change tends to have a lot more import in our imagination. But none of these climbers, Sasha, Ashima, Tommy, their careers like did not hinge on that. And I, I don't disagree a little oh, bit. Oh, really? With that. Yeah, I think that there's like some springboarded effect that happened with some of the the way that some of these like claims to being the first X to do X mm-hmm. or X to do Y or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess, I, but I mean, it's still and then but once a drop mon- in a long career. Yeah, but that's the thing that you, a lot of people don't get huh. that kind of momentum, and they don't right. get to build like a. You know, they they're not on the billboards. You know, who was one the year. first person on site? Fourteen A, remember? Um, I think I'm. I don't was, know. I'm not hundred percent of that. Uh, was it Francois Legrand? No, I think it was. Or was it Ellie Chaveau? Oh, remember yeah. that dude? Ellie Chaveau. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't even climb anymore. Really? Hmm. He's like this. He's like this badass photo. I I we tried to figure out fourteen A. Um, <laughs> I think he's like this badass like photojournalist like goes into war zones and shit. Oh, wow. Like there was a point at which Elie Chaveau was reported as being dead because mm. they thought he was killed in some sort of combat zone and he had to come back and be like, no, I'm still alive. 
Hmm. You know, just we VV or whatever. I thought he was dead because his 14A on site got downgraded. Got downgraded. And they're like, he's dead to us. (laughs) He may still be alive, but he's dead to us. But my point being is you didn't know because it seemed like a big deal at the time. And then, like, who the fuck cares? No, that's true. I think it was him. People can correct me. Most people are like, Ellie, who? You can send Chris an email. That's what I think about him. He was kind of small. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of remember the picture in the magazine, too, but. Yeah, and I'm sure it was probably downgraded by now. Yeah. Nevertheless, point being is that no one fucking cared. I mean, we cared at the time, but yeah, no one's just like, you know, you'd have to be a real deep nerd to know that Ellie Chabot yeah. on sighted the first 14A. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is funny to think about it in that way. And then go back further. Who on sighted the first 13B? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> Nobody knows. But at the, I'm sure whenever it happened, it was like, Zing on the cover of Climbing Magazine or whatever. There's some listener it was like, who God, knows. Yeah. It was like, uh, who's my favorite guy to reference that just disappeared from climbing? Gonzalez. Something Gonzalez. He was a front range climber that was like hot shit for a while. Hmm. He's always my reference. See, I, I don't even remember him and I use him as a reference. <laughs> but he was like, he's the new thing. And it's like. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, not everyone can enjoy the longevity that we've that we've had in climbing, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Who knows? We're still here. We're still here. We're still hanging out. But yeah, it's interesting. It's just like this total nerd out, right? And like you said, grades don't matter anyway. Dr. Len Nesifer is a Navajo climber, biker, and skier, and the founder and CEO of Natives Outdoors. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Arizona, with joint appointments at the American Indian Studies Program and the Udall Center for Public Policy. But most folks will know him for his Instagram account, where he shares hilarious memes that offer unsparing and hilarious critiques of all things outdoor-related. So I thought that we could start this podcast by um, acknowledging the land, whose land we are podcasting wait, from. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> Hold on a second. Just a second. I, you got to acknowledge the servers, though. That's, I think, the big point. You know, it might change mid-call and we have to restart it all over again. Yeah. What, whose, whose IP address we are broadcasting from. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's a whole other angle I hadn't thought about. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh man all right so len thanks for coming on the show and you know you are a f- very famous person on instagram in uh <laughs> in the outdoor community and you are and i only say that because you have a blue check mark <laughs> which which you ruthlessly remind everyone of <laughs> as, as often as possible um but, I hate to say I'm not 100% sure what that even means. It's basically the way I got it is I figured out that they give those blue check marks using AI. And you just you have to have a certain number of followers, certain number of engagement, and a certain number of people with blue checks that already follow you. Oh. And once you reach that, it'll you apply and it'll automatically do it. It's stupid. And what does it mean, though? I don't know. I'm exempt from rules. <laughs> um, I've, I'm a part of the. I was part of that Facebook leak recently. There's the rules don't apply to me. Oh, I don't. I know. got you. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, you just run roughshod over the internet now. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. 
But far far more important than your yeah. um, than your blue check, which uh, has no sway with with Calus over here. Uh, you you know you're an accomplished academic. You've got a PhD. You teach at a university, as I understand. Maybe you could just give the listeners like our a, a little bio on what you, what you do professionally. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I've done a lot of things. I've kind of jumped around. I mean, basically. I- I would say I just try to ensure that there's native people at the table when it comes to environmental issues and now sport. Um, I grew up outside and I basically took a long circuitous path to having my job be outside now, but I'm trained as a mechanical engineer. So I've worked a little bit in the auto industry, doing stuff around race cars and blah, 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 a little bit in the aerospace industry. But I think one of the things that I learned in that work is like, oh, I don't like spending 12 hours behind a computer. So I started working more on environmental and energy policy because it was very related to where I grew up in the Southwest. Um, And so my doctorate looks at the ways in which cultural values can be incorporated into things like um, technical economic models. So how does that apply to the outdoors? Well, you know, one of the things I learned... Uh, when Bears Ears was coming about was basically, you know, there's a lot of people intersecting and spending time in these landscapes, but we all come from different sort of cultural softwares when it comes to understanding how we relate to place in the environment. And I just thought that was really interesting. And so I made the leap. And now I run a company called Natives Outdoors. And we've done a few different things. But now what we're basically sort of honing in on and focusing on is consulting and media. There's a lot of people, a lot of companies trying to figure out how do you address indigenous issues? How do you engage with tribes? How do you tell stories that are compelling? And that's kind of where we um, basically threw an incredible team of folks, talented folks, that we're just sort of trying to make a difference through our work. So that's kind of the high level. I mean, you can always look at my LinkedIn, <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, but... blue check there too. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> my password for LinkedIn. I know. Don't worry. I, I just go on there just to, it's so stupid. I hate that platform. <laughs> so stupid. Let's talk a little bit about Bears Ears then as a place to start with this. And just to note, because we are an international worldwide podcast, Bears Ears seems like everybody ought to know exactly what we're talking about just by saying it, because we're also living with one of the four corners in our state. You know, as far as it pertains to climbers as a climbing podcast, among other formations and places that get climbed in the area, the main thing is that it does encompass a part of the greater Indian Creek area. So just to put it in perspective as to why climbers have been so interested in this particular monument versus somewhere else um, that doesn't have any uh, amazing crack climbs in it. You know, there's been all these different stakeholders that have been interested in this, you know, good and bad, for and against. Could you encompass what the sort of um, native interest is and how, and maybe a little bit about how that, you know, it's not a monolith. That's a big mistake I think everyone always makes politically is like, you know, it's a monument, all one. You mean? Yeah. What's that? No, no. Oh, I mean, the, the monolith as in the culture, as in oh, yeah. the groups of people all don't all want the same thing. So, I don't know if that's an easy thing to do, but maybe just put on the plate what the issues for that group of people and those stakeholders were and are with uh, with the Bears Ears uh, now becoming another uh, uh, back to its original form that was proposed um, several years ago. Yeah, if, I mean, really looking back at history, I mean, we can go back. There, there's documented human and 
inhabitation of, of, of basically dating over 13,000 years. Tribes will say time immemorial. Um, they say, well, 13,000 years keep going. <laughs> um, right. But you know, people have been spending time in this landscape since basically since after the last ice age. And um, that means that there's just layers of peoples and civilizations that are in histories there. The most recent being the ancestral Puebloan people, you know, basically somewhere from around zero AD to um, today, contemporary times. But that area was largely the sort of largest inhabitation of the Bears Ears region was between 1800, 800 AD and uh, 1400 AD. And so when you go out into this region, you'll generally find a lot of, of structures and artifacts from this time. Um, a lot of the New Mexico Pueblos, the Hopi tribe in Arizona, they all trace their roots back to this place in some form or another. There's sort of their creation stories talk about them spending time there. Um, so those tribes were there. Sort of the other tribes that were in the region were the Ute, Ute people. Um, they were more nomadic, um, and they would generally sort of cycle between the deserts and the mountains and just had sort of a different societal structure. And then my people, the Navajo, we came into the region around 1300 AD. We came from the north. We're Athabascan speakers. We were much different than the peoples in this region. But through intermarriage and through exchange of cultures, we began to, um, you know, basically assimilate a lot of Puebloan and Ute people into our society. And so we've also developed a deep relationship to this place as well. You know, fast forward to the 1800s, um, 1700s, 1800s, you know, the waves of European colonization, first with the Spanish and then with the U.S., meant that we were eventually displaced from these lands. 1860 basically is kind of the date, 1860, 1870. But what was happening during that period following was that a lot of museums uh, in the United States and overseas in Europe, uh, universities, there became a deeper interest in archaeology and artifacts. And so the theft of artifacts basically became an incredibly large black market. There's a lot of um, document of evidence of like the University of Utah paying people $100 for a pot, for example, um, and local Boy Scout troops in the southeastern um, part of Utah would basically go out on pot hunting expeditions. But, you know, the sort of the equivalent of why that matters for the tribes is that, you know, this is effectively like going into Washington, D.C. and pilfering the Smithsonian. It's kind of a bad look. But the tribes had been trying to protect this area for um, close to 100 years. And, you know, around the turn of the century is really when a lot of this stuff ramped up. So, you know, kind of a funny part of that is the Antiquities Act, which is a basically a, a sort of power given by Congress to the president in this country to protect landscapes sort of unilaterally very quickly, um, because in their view, Congress could not quick enough was was in large part spurred by what was happening in the Southwest. Teddy Roosevelt, who signed the Antiquities Act and, and created this, understood that there was these pressures on um, for artifacts coming from these public lands. But granted, you know, the thing is that he his interest was not protecting this for the Indians sake. He was protecting this for the, the sort of heritage and legacy of what he saw at the public land system that he was creating. That law passed in 1906, you know created a lot of national monuments that eventually became national parks and other sorts of things. Eventually, what happened around 2009 
was five tribes, the five tribes of the region, the Ute tribes, the Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, and Pueblos um, came together and said, hey, here's an opportunity to protect these landscapes. And this basically came on the heels of one of the largest archaeological busts by the Bureau of Land Management police, which I didn't realize had a police department. But in 2009, there was about 40 or 50,000 artifacts recovered from Bluff and Blanding, Utah, um, from a bunch of Mormon families in the area. But the tribes came together and said, hey, we're going to put our differences aside and we're going to try to protect this. And we're going to lobby President Obama to protect this. And this is significant for a few reasons. The one is that tribes historically and their sort of ability to affect federal land management was almost non-existent. Most tribes sort of governing authority is limited to reservations. That's sort of their jurisdiction. That's their sovereignty per se. But this was significant because they banded together, leveraged a few important federal laws and, and precedents around tribal consultation and all these other things to basically force conversations with the president around this issue. So they came together and lobbied the president to do this. But what was key in all of this was that it wasn't just tribes at the table. There's um, a paper I wrote that might be getting published with the American Alpine Club that talks about the collaboration that occurred between tribes and climbers around this issue. You know, historically, you know, tribes and climbers have been at loggerheads when it comes to climbing access, whether that's Devil's Tower or Cave Rock or, you know, you can name all the other places in which there's been conflict. But this is one of the places in which Access Fund and the tribes came together and said, hey, we need to work towards the larger protection of this landscape. And what was been really cool that came out of that was one, in my opinion, my argument is that that sort of coalition of tribes and non-tribal groups was really what brought that over the line and, and protected this place as a monument. But the reasons why Trump, the Trump administration targeted as one of their first things is that it was tribes exerting their sort of sovereignty off of tribal land on the management of federal land. So one, it was a big conservation gain, but also it was like basically empowering tribes in a way that hadn't happened before. So kind of a I try to provide a cliff notes there of all of that. No, that's that's yeah. fascinating. And, yeah. and I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the collaboration between the tribes and the climbers. Yeah. You know, because I've sort of, you know, cynically noted that, you know, when when these monuments, national parks, things like that get formed there, you know, regardless of whether it was tribal or not, you know, there can be the same loggerheads against climbing and banning fixed anchors and, you know, Canyonlands does which um nobody seems to know so you know i was i was always kind of like well gosh what if they had you know proposed the fact that are like removing or like banning fixed anchors we would have i mean it would have been a real like soul search about like are we on the right side of history are we gonna you know you know so it was like and i know that it was not haphazard that we arrived at a place where the climbing was left there was something that was negotiated that was worked on together but it's just, it's just like I said, my cynical part of it was like, well, that would have been awkward, you know, <laughs> if yeah. you'd have had to oppose it or or whatever, or like find some way. But, um, but luckily, I mean, those those inroads were laid by by our representatives at the Access Fund and and in the tribes, and um, you know, we've come out on the, the side of of it, of working together here. And and you know, one of the big things that really brought it over the line is that the Access Fund offered to have their climber stewards based in the, the, the creek area, basically in the most heavily visited time of year. And so this year was the first time in which those climbing stewards were spending time there. And that in large part, that was because the tribes 
asked that the climbers self-regulate. And how do you do that? How do you sort of promote that? How do you make that happen? And so it was really cool to see that the access one made good on that and it's on the ground. That was on the access one side. On the flip side, the other the other end of it was um, there was two uh, native climbers um, uh, who were basically working with the access fund, or sorry, yeah, one was working with the access fund and the other one was working with um, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. And these two folks, one was Santa Domingo Pueblo and the other was Navajo. And they basically were able to bridge that cultural gap between the climbers and their communities on saying why this mattered. And I think if it wasn't, you know, if any of those pieces had been missing, I don't think it would have gotten over the line. And that's just, it's crazy to, you know, look back in time and realize that how precarious it all was. I think the best critique just to like, you know, give the other side of this argument, because there's, you know, there's a swath of the country that, you know, views bears ears negatively for a variety of reasons. But as I understand their argument, or maybe the best case of their argument, they just feel like the Antiquities Act was interpreted uh, a little too generously in this case. And so, there was this idea that this was just too large and that this didn't have all of the land that was given this cultural value is sort of preposterous. And so how do you respond to to that argument that people put forth? You know, it's also the economic argument, too, of, of you know, much of southeastern Utah has based its economy off of extractive industries, whether that's mm-hmm. oil and gas or uranium. And, you know, there's legitimacy to that for sure. And, you know, these, that's what these communities have been based on for a long time. You know, what I, what I kind of engage with that and saying is when we look at the sort of language of the, the antiquities act says it has to be effectively be the, the smallest amount of land needed to sort of protect these resources is sort of the language that's in there. The tribe's original proposal was over 2 million acres. Like, I think it was like 2.3. I I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere in that range. But in the monument designation that came down was 1.9, somewhere in that range, 1.9 million acres, huge swath of land. There's over 100,000 known archaeological sites dating back 13,000 years. If you put that in perspective, that's more than all of the other national park units combined in terms of the human history that's within there. And I think if we look at what that means, effectively, like the center of the Puebloan civilization, the 12, 1300 year range was centered there. I mean, this is effectively like protecting large metropolitan areas of like, say, the East Coast. And there's that aspect, but also, you know, it's it's incredibly delicate and fragile environment. I mean, we've spent time there, but for those who haven't, it's a arid landscape that takes a long time in recovery from human impact, whether that's stepping on cryptobiotic soil. Soil disturbance is basically one of the biggest threats to um, archaeological resource protection. But I think on the flip side, you know, on the economic end of it, um, you know, when we look at like uranium, for example, which is one of the largest resources there, most of our uranium that we use in the United States actually comes from like Australia and Kazakhstan, you know, and it's way more cost effective for them to mine it there. And and the idea of us having a uranium industry here in the United States is really unfeasible unless there's like a pretty substantial increase in the price of that resource. That and then also for the price of oil, which was also in there as well. It's just like the economic feasibility versus the sort of impact that would have just the math just in, in my my assessment doesn't pencil out. Um, so yeah, it's, a, but I think I, I've heard all of those arguments for sure. <laughs>
I guess what's interesting about Bears Ears now is that it's, I think for a lot of people who maybe have, are familiar with this issue just by glancing at headlines in the newspapers, they probably only really see this kind of, you know, political football being tossed back and forth between different parties and administrations. And so, you know, so, okay, so this last week, you know, the Biden restored the the boundaries to, I believe, what had been uh what obama had set them at is there a reason to celebrate or are we just gonna enjoy this for three more years until you know trump is elected again and my daughter has to work in a coal mine (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's the that's the calculus that i mean we've opened a pandora's box with some of these issues i think for good and bad i think to your point like it is it is now a political issue um in a way that you know, it was, of course, when it happened, but now that it's just getting kicked around, it's, you know, are we looking at three years of having a monument versus not? And then is it going to get tied up in the courts? I mean, on and on and on. To a certain degree, we're probably going to be living to some with some degree of that. The other, the flip side of it is that I think for other tribes in the West, there's been this sort of understanding that, oh, this is a new tool to sort of protect these large landscapes that we have cultural connections to. I believe there's a number of monument proposals in the Southwest that I'm familiar with that are in the Southwest that are being led by tribes. And one of them that I'm going to go spend some time on is um, right south of Las Vegas, right in the sort of corner of Nevada. There's this place called Spirit Mountain. And it's it's a chunk of the Mojave Desert that basically is either a mix of military land and public land, but that the tribes in the region are trying to protect because of its cultural significance. And, And they're basically trying to use the same playbook as Bears Ears. Granted, it's a much smaller area, but their sort of argument is that it can create a sort of continuous corridor of federally protected land from California to Arizona. Um, And I think that's the sort of like on the door on the tribe side, it sort of opened that realm of possibility of, of how do we, you know, protect these ancestral landscapes that we have connection to, but also, you know, do it in a way that might have some sticking power. But, you know, I, I think about that a lot as well. And, And I think the other thing is, I think it might give us, especially like kind of bringing it back to climbing. I think it gives us a sort of, um, false sense that like, you know, the climbing community and tribes still are, you know, are working together and things are all good and well, but, you know, I think there's still a lot of things to be worked out. You know, I care about climbing and I care about tribal issues, but it just, it becomes really like hard once, you know, when the two communities I'm a part of start having conflict, you know, for, you know, I understand the reasons on both sides, but it's like, how do you navigate that? And I think that's kind of that fractionation of support that happened around Bears Years, I think could present a threat in other areas that, you know, climbers and tribes have mutual interest in. Another sort of um, just nuts and bolts question because the the opposition, you know, and in particularly specifically in sort of Utah politics, is that this is some sort of federal land grab. But I don't understand that because it, it primarily it was BLM land to begin with, right? Or is there a lot of state land in there that got that got washed into it? I mean, because doesn't the state land around there remain state land? Yeah, it does. And I think there's like some proposals to buy some of that land back so the state would be compensated. But I think their argument is really based in, you know, it's kind of um, it's effectively erected a barrier to mining and extraction industries. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it has it has an impact. And I think one of the 
things I always point to is that whenever there was a there, I think it was Headwater Economics or another group basically studied what the effect was of a monument designation on surrounding communities. And it's like Mm -hmm. a net, it's a net positive. Mm -hmm. Um, More people come, more people spend money. But I think the broader question is, is does it change the character of the community? Which I think is a legitimate concern for a lot of these border communities, because, you know, in Southeast Utah, they look at Moab with like disgust. Um, Mm -hmm. And rightfully so. Moab is kind of an intense place certain times a year. And I think for some of these communities, that's, a legitimate concern is like, are we going to, is that going to be, is that our future? Um, right. And is that a good thing? Yeah. 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 And Moab, yeah, no, Moab is particularly becoming a bit of a cautionary tale about what, you know, selling your soul to tourism can, can do to your town. I mean, in, in Montes, you know, I was just working with some, or hanging out with some folks who, um, you know, just purchased some land in Monticello who are from California, you know, and it's like, there's a lot of land for sale in Monticello and there's a lot of people kind of going that way because it's, you know, it's a quarter or less than what it would cost to be in Moab. And so, and I know, you know, how that can make, I mean, just saying that like this couple from California bought a plot in Monticello can like, you know, start raising hackles over coffee at the local diner and in a heartbeat, you know, just a California license plate rolling through has this crazy, Oh my God, they're coming, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. If it's a, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know what I mean? So I understand like that sort of fear because, and, and it it all kind of does indeed make sense, but maybe they can look at Moab and go, well, what, what can we do a little differently, you know, when it comes down to it? So. Totally. I mean, if it gets that, if it gets to that point. And it might, you know, the challenge in that part of the world is the limiting factor is water. Yes. And that's really, truly what led to the collapse of some of the Puebloan civilizations in that part of the world, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, it could be, it'll be interesting for years and see what happens. But I think that's going to be, yeah, an interesting politics to navigate for sure. I have a question about just the the character of, you know, the average indigenous person um, in the U.S. in 2021, because you, there's a lot, you know, you've, I think you've even used this phrase yourself in this conversation about just having a spiritual con- connection to the land. And w- what does that actually mean? Are people, maybe religious is the wrong word, but do, is there that spiritual fabric that's a, a part of the community? Or is a lot of this rhetoric based around recognizing just basic dignities and cultural representations and and having like the dignity of being you know, we've been here, we've been part of this place for a long time, or is there actually like a, in, in spirit, in practice, like a, an almost religious aspect to, to a statement like that? I would almost say all of the above. I almost want to caveat this statement and say, like, one of the things about being indigenous in this country is that we have, we're like citizens of two nations, our tribe and the United States. And that's presented all kinds of issues over time. But, you know, part of that is that there's a bunch of federal laws that protect our access to religious freedom on public lands. One of them is called the American Indian Religious Freedoms Act. Um, Up until 1974, it was actually in some states a felony to practice native religions, whether that's carrying an eagle feather or practicing certain ceremonies. And so, you know, at least in the since the 70s has been sort of this clawing back of rights to access lands. Um, and that's sort of codified in federal law. So my point is, is that we have this sort of 
dual nature of trying to like navigate our rights and just getting these rights recognized in this right to religious freedom, but also just sort of, you know, where we're at today and that, you know, I'm speaking English to you. English is my first language. I've learned Navajo second, but that's meant that like, I'm a little bit more distant to my cultural traditions than say my mom. Um, but, you know, for a lot of Native folks, that sort of relationship to cultural traditions and religious practices is, is very much a spectrum. Um, most Native folks today live in urban areas, maybe have some family or connection to reservation. Um, but less and less that's becoming, you know, it, there's less and less connection there. And so there's a lot, there's a, the diaspora of folks that are, you know, wanting to build connection there. And so what's come out of that is this sort of, they call it this sort of pan-Indian identity, this sort of identity that connects all Native peoples. And there's, you know, I have my issues with it, but I understand its political purpose. It's to build a unified identity. But one of the things that kind of gets lost in that mix is the sort of nuances and differences across cultures. You know, from my lived experience, like my grandfather, was a traditional healer. I spent a lot of time in Bears Ears collecting medicine, collecting firewood, doing stuff like that, you know, spending a lot of time on land with him. And, you know, those sort of religious experiences we would have with him were mainly just sort of these, I like to say, like pulling the permit, <laughs> like asking for permission to do things. And so we would always relate to the landscape as a living being. And so it was always this like constant dialogue that we would have. And I guess I would say that would be something that's different, but in the, then like the Western society, but in the large part, the reason why we did that is because it, it, well, this is me talking as like an academic, but like, you know, there's, there's something to be said. If you relate to an inanimate object as a living being, you're much more likely to treat it with a greater degree of respect. And so in our sort of cultural traditions, we've just embedded that into our ways of being. And, you know, I think anyone that spends time, a lot of time on landscape, um, you begin to feel a connection to a place you begin to feel like it's a part of you it has that sort of familiar feeling of putting on a you know an old sweatshirt and that's the sort of it, it, almost that's like the next step of that is is that's where it's like how do you relate to this place as something as a place that gives you life and that's where that sort of spiritual connection draws from and one of the things that i've learned and spending a lot of times with you know, folks that live in the creek effectively is they care about this place too. You know, they love this place too. And in in many ways, I'm almost seeing that there's like, if I were to project 500 years from now, there's going to be a convergence in values in a way, just simply by that sort of amount of time being spent on land. And I, and I'd almost say like, that's, that's what the product of, if I were to say spirit, Navajo spiritual, you know, native spirituality, Navajo spirituality, that like, it's just, it's just, that's what happens when you spend that much time in a place. That's a really beautiful sentiment. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's really interesting to think about the, the uh, convergence of, of that type of spirituality at some point. That is maybe a, a good segue into the other thing I wanted to talk to you about today, which is an article you wrote for Outside Magazine this week about taking a critical look at land acknowledgements. So maybe you could just tell us what land acknowledgements are and what your what your two cents or your take <laughs> your, your hot take on land acknowledgements is right now. 
Oh, totally. I've been, you know, that article took me like eight months to write. I was like, the, the editor was like, can you write this and get it to me as soon as the next week? He's like, I don't know what I feel on this. <laughs> but uh, I mean, so for those that are unfamiliar, land acknowledgements are effectively, it's been uh, this tool to rectify the erasure of native peoples from history and sort of the landscapes in which we spend time. Um, and so often the way it goes is that, you know, you're at a big event, you're on social media or whatever you may be doing. And, you know, you basically acknowledge the sort of the indigenous peoples that have some sort of substance, substantive connection to that place. Um, and, you know, it'll be something like the ancestral homelands of the Ute, Navajo and Hopi peoples. If we're talking about, or the Puebloan peoples, if we talk about bears ears and, um, the, TLDR of my take on it is really like it, it's it's a tool and all tools have their uses and they have their limitations and I think what I've seen sort of in the outdoor industry specifically and academia specifically I just seen it like it's basically been used as an end all when it comes to indigenous issues it's like we're going to acknowledge indigenous peoples and their issues but we're not going to like address the barriers to higher education and college facing these communities that's like too big of a conversation to have but we'll give you your little acknowledgement and I think the other thing is I've heard from other native folks it's like the critique is like well it's like you just stole my car and you're telling me you stole my car and now you're driving off with it again like like what's like am i supposed to feel better but on the flip side i think the other element of that is that it's like yeah like it 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 creates a sort of uh motivation for folks to learn the names of the native peoples in the area and maybe that sparks interest in learning more but i were having been an educator and taught young people and kind of seeing what people know our public education system has failed us in sort of teaching the history of indigenous peoples so the land acknowledgement is a step but like i think then to take the next step like most people then don't know where to look like, where do you find that history of who are these people? What are their history? What's going on here? And that's like, I, I just, that's kind of where I just see the gap. And I, and I think personally, like I've been a little frustrated with it because it almost feels like one, it couches our issues in the past as if all of our issues are related to just being removed and violently dispossessed from the landscape. And that's that. Um, but, you know, today, like we have, Violence against Native people from the police rivals that uh, basically is in some measures is higher than any other marginalized group in this country. There's economic issues. There's all kinds of other issues there that a land acknowledgement doesn't touch on, nor does it give the sort of breadcrumbs to figure out more. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've been trying to figure out is like, okay, what's what do you do then? Like, where do we go? How do you make people... (laughs) motivated, inspired to learn about such a brutal history. And I, that's been sort of the nut that we've been trying to crack for a while. And, you know, in some of our media, it's like been trying to base things in sort of the contemporary experience, whether that's like 
climbing and Kochi stronghold and talking about the Shirakawa Apache. We wrote an article for climbing a couple years ago about that. And it was an amazing experience, but it was this sort of like awesome climbing. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, having that, that sort of lens and experience that then kind of give people then the history, the vegetables, you know, as I say, giving the people the candy, getting their appetite, you know, kind of going and then giving the vegetables of the history of what happened here and the history of the Shirakawa Apache people. And that's almost like it's slower. It just feels like, man, if we were to have to do this for every place, it's like it's it's a long process and I could spend the rest of my life doing that. But the main takeaway is that it's an imperfect tool. And I think in pointing that out, I wanted to have people understand that because I think there's been this over-reliance on that. This is an end-all be-all. This is going to fix things and we're doing the right thing. And I think it's like, I, I think it's just giving people that broader, deeper, nuanced understanding about all of that. So is this something that's much wider than the outdoor industry? It, it's it's largely exists on sort of the of, of politics. It's on the spectrum of the left. And within academia, it's sort of done a ton, uh, ad, like ad nauseum. Like I just wanted to vomit in some of these. Well, that's <laughs> one of the things in the article that, you know, it's whatever is, is part is you, you create an anecdote, you know, to start to make your point about like having this very awkward situation of, of land acknowledgement on a zoom call (laughs) so i guess that's probably what you're talking about yeah Uh, that that actually happened in the outdoor industry so right yeah but but i mean i would say that's where it exists and i think there's some it i i guess i want to say that like it it is done with like people do it with well intention and i understand like people are coming from a good place when they do it i think the thing is is that I, i don't think there's a lot of critical thought given to you know sort of the reflexive reactions that we have in doing some of these things. Uh, you were uh, speaking my language in that article because I've long uh, found these kind of, I, I hate to use this word, but it is like the kind of performative activism that is all about symbolism. It's all about saying the right thing. It's all about, it's it's often about um, just, you know, attacking people within your group who are sympathetic to your, your political position anyway, and, and, and trying to convince them to adopt your new coded language that is like the next level up uh, on the scale of, of righteousness. And the, you know, this kind of narcissism of small differences has the effect of really uh, preventing us from solving the problems. And as you alluded to some, the, the indigenous people of, you know, are at the top of the scale in terms of, you know, life expectancy and, and a, a whole host of other issues and putting the esoteric, pinpoint of a of the land acknowledgement in your instagram bio doesn't doesn't do anything when people are thirsty you don't you know you don't um make symbolic posts about thirst you give you give that person a glass of water you know what i mean and so and and we've seen this so often in my lifetime we've seen this with um recycling you know I think there's a parallel there with understanding that, oh, I can just like drink plastic bottles of water as long as I recycle them, then I'm doing something good. But it's, you're missing the the part of the equation that you don't, you shouldn't be consuming the plat, you should be reducing and reusing or whatever. You know, like the climate change discussion is also kind of stuck in this perpetual cycle of convincing people whether or not climate change exists, which 
I just saw Hazel Finlay posted something on Instagram today about the percentage of people who think climate change is a huge problem around the world. And it's it's largely all above like 50, 60 percent in every country. And so the the battle to win the hearts and minds of people that this is a serious issue has basically been won to the degree that I think it can be. And the hard thing is, is that we still don't know how to fix some of these deep, systemic, problematic issues. We don't have a very good solution to climate change at the moment. We don't know how to fix the life expectancy of indigenous people. We don't know how to unwind the um, the the boundaries of how property has been unfairly drawn in this country for the last 400 years. It just can't be done at the drop of a hat. And so I'm, I'm interested in the conversation that gets in, that rolls up the sleeves of policymakers and starts to figure out how, how we fix some of these things. And so anyway, that, to me, that's what your article was getting at was like, we need to, we need to think about the, 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 what the problem is and what the real solutions are. And, and you know, quite honestly, like that's the messiness uh, of policy is that it's all it's understanding what you're willing to trade off and what you're not and then being able to make that decision because it's all imperfect you know and i think what i see in the land acknowledgement discussion and also this sort of policing of politics that exists in the in our communities in large part is sort of people's sort of gut reaction of trying to like navigate the systemic issues that are out of their control it's trying to bring control to their lives in a way to like help solve these larger issues i think people care about them but then it's like what do we do because they're so overwhelming like climate change is overwhelming indigenous issues once you start diving into them are overwhelming and i think that's that's where like that sort of rhetoric starts getting a little <laughs> uh starts getting a little um uh, yeah i think to your point righteous and uh, you know as as you know going through my education and and going through the things that I've gone through, like I came from a very righteous position about a lot of things. Um, but as I learned more about the world and how fucking messy it is, I don't know if I can say that on here, but, um, it, uh, you know, I think, uh, I, my world, my worldview has just been like, well, what am I willing to compromise on and what am I not? And how can I navigate this world of gray? You know, it's not going to be black and white. It's going to inherently always be this trade-off. And um, I think especially around policy, you know, it becomes, you know, with indigenous peoples, it becomes this question of like, how far do we want to go? Because if we talk about the issues, you know, private property ownership is inherently an issue that like dispossesses indigenous people from their land. But like that's going to upend a lot of economic systems and wealth that people have bought. And, that you know, that's going to be a line that a lot of people won't cross. And it's just not feasible. But there's some in the native community say that we need to go that far. There's also a lot that say we don't. Um, you know, it's a whole spectrum. But I think like policy is that sort of sausage making in the middle where you have to bring that all together and say, what's the viable way forward amidst all of this mess? I have this sympathy to sort of the climbing community, if we want to bring it back to climbing, since we're on a climbing <laughs> podcast. But, you know, it's like, I always just think about, there's been this this great movement in the last few years, um, particularly in the last year about, you know, sort of social activism, activism within climbing. And and I'm always wondering, like, are we ex expecting too much from this thing, right? This, like, thing that even in the 
you know, other than a handful of people, it's only a small part of their actual lives. They have jobs and families and, you know, and, and I think about Indian Creek specifically and like, you know, projecting myself when I was there as a 25 year old dude and thinking about some 25 year old guy or girl there now, just like what exactly are that as when you talk about these complicated policy things, you know, is the guy that's like been posted up in, in Creek pasture supposed to do about it and is supposed to is he supposed to feel guilty because he his parents paid for his college and now he's just fucking off for a couple of years is he do you know what i mean like there's all this pressure on this person and i think of the person that i was then and i'm like i had no idea any of this was going on i just wanted to rock climb i wanted to live in my car it seemed really simple i didn't seem like i was hurting anybody do you know what i mean and, and so it, even if it is somewhat performative, right, to do these land acknowledgments on your on on your Instagram, you know, it's like it's really how much more can we ask of that person at that point in their life to be doing exactly now? Will they will they in fact use that as a catalyst maybe later in life? Maybe when they do go back to school, maybe when they do you know, get a job and become an active member of society, are they going to think back to that and go, oh, yeah, you know, I did learn a lot about that or I did understand what I was doing down there as part of this Bears Ears thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like it actually can be a catalyst because I can't, you can't let, expect that person to just drop everything and, you know, go start throwing punches and blanding, you know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> I would, you know what I mean? I so I, I feel like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I feel like though, I mean, so th there's part of me that's like, okay, it's, it's performative at this point, but people's minds can get changed over time. And they're not always in a position to tackle these things that you're talking about, you know? Totally. And I would almost say like the more important side of that equation is the person spending the time on the land there. You know, mm -hmm. because if if someone feels like that landscape has made them a better person, has made them stronger, has like taken them to a new, empowered them in a way like that will have sort of that will set this that will sort of fertilize the soil that when they hear the sort of narratives of indigenous peoples and why these things matter, then that those seeds will grow. And I think that's what matters more is that like if people have connection to landscape and to place, because I, I would almost say like one of the things that's almost missing from broader United States society is that most folks aren't born into cultures or societies in which they're expected to have that relationship. And that, you know, cultures are different. Cultures have their own things. But I think when I see people are connected to a place and have that sort of deep experience in a landscape, it, it inherently makes them better people. It makes them feel empowered in their bodies, especially around climbing. Um, it makes them empowered in sort of the lives that they live. And I think, you know, when I look at the ceremonies and things that we do for our young people as they're coming of age, they're all embedded in landscapes and they're all embedded in like trying to establish that relationship between person and landscape. And that begins with, you know, our umbilical cord being buried in a significant place. And that's always the place that we'll return to. And, you know, I'm sure that there's some climbers that have left a lot of skin in those cracks. Right. <laughs> but, you know, those sort of experiences, I think, are almost like 
that's where I would almost say it's like, where do we invest time in? Where do we invest? Like if we can invest in that side of that, I think that's where almost that longer substantive change happens. I think that that's true for most people, most climbers, but then occasionally we get these yahoos who show up and bolt uh, 5.3 five three sport climbs on petroglyphs so um <laughs> why don't you give us your your uh, hot take on 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 that story oh man oh poor poor dude is i don't know where he's at now but he he got yeah fourth degree burns if that's a thing <laughs> <laughs> i just you know i just saw that and i'm just like you know I just kind of see it as a symptom of a larger issue is that like we don't a lot of folks don't know about the history of this area of the southwest region. And I can't fault that person for not knowing, you know, maybe they saw that maybe they thought it was I mean, his sort of words, if I remember right, was like he didn't even he thought they were it was just graffiti mm-hmm. or something of that. That's sort. what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I've heard that before. too, <laughs> right. And I heard that and I was like, oh, yeah, OK, I can I can see that. And, I, and you know, looking at that event, it was like it was a learning opportunity. Um, I, I'm sure you guys know Chris Schulte, but he's a, become a really close friend of mine through Bears Ears, actually. Um, and he reached out to this guy and had a long conversation with him about what happened, you know, and, and he felt the guy felt terrible. You know, I think once he kind of understood the magnitude of what was going on there, but, you know, kind of looking at that context, it was like, this is a systemic issue and like we don't have a sort of choice in the sort of side of that system that we participate in. And I think I saw that and I rightfully, I kind of felt pretty upset, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I think the destruction that's happened on a broader scale from policy, whether that's large scale extraction or the theft of archeological resources, like this was just a kind of a drop in the bucket in comparison. And I think it was important to like, I almost saw, I use that as a teaching example for a lot of folks. It's like, you know, these issues still exist and this is a contemporary example of how these things can play out today. Um, but one of the broader concerns that I had around the issue, and I still have a little bit of not so much now that Bears Ears got reinstated. Well, a little bit. Yeah, still. I would say still have it is that those sort of events can start eroding and chipping away at that sort of alliance that happened between tribes and climbers in the Bears Ears. And one of the fears that I have right now is that I, I kind of worry about tribes taking a more antagonistic relationship towards climbing in in, in the creek and other places because of events like this. And I think that's kind of where, you know, how do we get ahead of this issue in the climbing community to ensure that we can still retain access to these areas that are incredible, incredible climbing and, you know, also have incredible cultural resources. It's like always this sort of delicate balance. And I think that's kind of where I think Access Fund, Alpine Club, you know, there was a lot of things that happened around that in sort of the wake of that, that I think has you know, ensure that that balance is staying intact. Yeah. I mean, this is, was it a bonus episode or do we do this on the regular feed when we talked about homie? But uh, yeah, I mean, it it felt to us like, okay, incredibly dumb, not malicious. I mean, there's been definitely, you know, degradation of, of archeological sites simply done out of, out of spite. Um, Actually right after that, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so, so th- that that was it. But it was also our main concern was like, oh God, we we're living in this time of access, you know, for climbers all over the country getting kind of like 
you know, pushing up against these boundaries and this is not what we needed. And, and, and that was a concern of mine as well. It's like, okay, so now our partners in bears ears see this go on and what do they expect next. And, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of knowledge actually, I think in the mainstream world about what exactly it is we do. And even just having those big pictures of those big shiny bolts was just not a good look as, as, as you'd like to say occasionally. And it's like, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, it, that was just such a prickly issue to have sort of pop onto the scene at all the wrong time, so to speak. Imagine getting a um, talking to by Chris Schulte. <laughs> if, that, if that doesn't set you straight, I don't know what will. <laughs> get a big vein going. Like, I got <laughs> yeah that's pretty scary oh, yeah. i've only been on his good side so <laughs> you could squash your skull like a grape you know you were just talking about this connection to land that that you know maybe climbers in the creek can have and i i believe that's the case I, you know we just got done talking about this this person who did this thing on these petroglyphs but you know i've had visitors from europe you know who who spend time in the creek and and actually can't believe how clean it is you know and and we have an impact and and the fact that there's a great many of us is what really what the impact is but i feel like it is a place where on an individual level again you've got these like outlier people that don't really know what's going on but i think by and large it's been treated pretty well the thing is is that um there is this connection to land and um i was just wondering about sort of at least from where you're from and in your tribe, you know, if we talk about skiing, I know you're a skier, um, you're a backcountry skier, um, you're a climber yourself. What kind of tendrils and, and connections are being made, if they are being made um, within the communities and, and tribes for that kind of outdoor activities? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's traditionally um, hunting, fishing, camping, those kind of things is what I grew up on as well. Um, but we all, we kind of know that what we end up doing with climbing and skiing and some of these other things, although they're outdoor activities, they're they're a little bit different than those older traditional activities. Um, you know, what what kind of things are going on there? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, there's two native climbers that were working with the Bears Ears between the two. And, and I've always just kind of wondered because I know there are folks down there that climb and then I hear about you skiing and and where that if that's going back into the community at all. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's been sort of this chicken and the egg of like, and sort of navigating our work with natives outdoors, you know, we had this question as like, do we sort of try to address this question of access, which starts butting up these like larger economic barriers to outdoor rec um, and also tribal laws like climbing's banned on the Navajo Nation because of uh, accidents that happened on Shiprock in the 70s. And so climbing's like limited for that reason. And, and one of the things that we kind of in sort of navigating that is like, well, how do we make it more accessible in our eyes first began with like making it visible and like having native people sort of be in front of sort of the media created and the stories created. And so that's where we focused. I, I guess I would say in terms of the groups that there's a lot of groups out there that are doing incredible work on the reservation. Navajo Yes, for example, is doing some stuff with biking. Highly recommend checking them out. There's another a guy I know, um, John Yazi, that started a bikepacking organization. But it's all been, you know, trying to figure out how do you navigate tribal law, which is a whole separate conversation. But one of the things that I sort of saw early on 2017 was this, this sort of question of like, where are the native peoples in the sport? You know, I knew about Lonnie Kalk. 
I, I, Ron Kalk was like, you know, I had his poster on my wall when I was a kid and I didn't realize that his son was native. You know, <laughs> Had I known that earlier, I think I would have taken to climbing a lot sooner, but you know, I, I saw him snowboarding and um, now he's become an incredible climber. But I think one of the things is like seeing that sort of media, that's kind of where we've tried to sort of trying to change the arc and almost like creating the opening to then say, of course we do these things. These things are a part of us. There's a lot of young people doing that. And I think to your, the point earlier I made about connection to landscape, one of the things that's sort of a challenge in our communities is that many of the the traditional economies that tied us to the land, as you mentioned, um, hunting, um, ranching, farming, don't exist to the degree, to the degree that they did, like in my childhood, you know, I spent a lot of time out at sheep camp and my cousins now don't have that access. And so they don't have access to the mountains and they're not spending as much time out there. And so the question is, is like, even we as native people are spending more time behind screens like everyone else in the world. And that's almost sort of to our detriment of our culture, because so much of our cultural traditions are taught through the landscape, through the land. And so our media in large part has been one filling that gap, but also trying to tell stories that sort of, I would say, cut both ways in terms of like empowering Native peoples and sort of the stories that we tell, but also being a tool of education and inspiration. So you mentioned backcountry skiing, you know, one of the things that in sort of my dive into the history is that skiing and skis have been a tool used by indigenous hunters in this continent and in Western Asia and Nordic countries for like 6,000 years. And, you know, it's, it's a tool of movement. And so that almost, um, that's kind of led us to sort of understand sports as a sort of, um, movement through landscape is a form of traditional ecological knowledge. It's a form of being safe in an environment. These are things that people have done for thousands of years is move through these landscapes. And now the way that we're doing it, of course, is for fun and like, and, and for, you know, personal enjoyment for health. Um, but I think in grounding it in that aspect, it almost makes it much more um, palatable to then saying, okay, like, how do we sort of, how do we undo this climbing ban on Navajo Nation so that Navajo folks can enjoy recreating on our own lands? Um, Because that's, you know, I can't even go climb, you know, in my backyard right now because of the laws that are on the books. And I think part of that is, you know, the sort of thing, the barrier that we have to overcome in our community is that folks will say, oh, well, that's what white people do. That's what blah, blah, blah does. And it's like, no, actually, like we've done this for millennia. Good point around climbing. I wrote this uh, piece for the climbing scene, I don't know, like two, three years ago. One of the board members of the Friends of Cedar Mesa had this story about this rope that was found in Comb Ridge that was like yucca root rope about 40 feet long. And there's some archaeological evidence that there was um, uh, sort of rope scars above some of these granaries where some of these uh, Puebloan people were being top belayed, uh, hip belayed down into these granaries using yucca root ropes. And of course, that was a form of climbing. It was very practical, but it was a movement through landscape. And so in terms of like going back to the community and say, hey, we've we've climbed, we've skied, we've done these things. But now instead of needing to do it for necessity, we're doing it because it's fun. You know, we can have fun. We can spend time in these places. So that's kind of where we've been focusing is on that media side. And and this year, um, it's really exciting because we actually are starting to address this larger question of access, because that's a larger nut to crack, because it's 
larger economics, structural issues, like where do you begin? Because it's like, if you don't have money to pay for gas or food to get to these places to do these things, then it's like all out the window. Um, but we partnered with 686, Patagonia, Solomon and Icon Pass, but we're going to be giving out a bunch of passes to native folks this year to get them fully on skis, fully kitted out. Icon passes lessons and also a bit of gas money for to spend time up there. And, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket, but maybe one of those folks that does those things will be inspired to, you know, become Lonnie, to become, you know, um, Connor Ryan, who's one of our ski athletes, you know, just kind of sort of get that ball rolling. So that's sort of our, our sort of uh, inklings into that now. All right. You want to finish with the memes? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, it, we're we're gonna laugh about this because it's it's your it's your Instagram identity. What what do you call yourself? Something about a the, the sommelier of memes or, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and I, I want to end with this because one of the things that I find uh, is accessible about what you do on social media is that you have a bit of gallows humor about these issues, these giant issues. You. You know, you you are in a position to to play with you know sort of native native stereotypes uh, a little bit because um, that you you are you know you're, you're from that part of the world and so I, I like that it's not all gloom and doom it's not all stern you know you know sort of uh, lecturing if you will and so um, I think it's you know as fun as it is it, it's also serving this purpose and I don't know if that's been by design um, but I mean. The bringing the humor and this, and oftentimes, like I said, this sort of gallows humor to it all, like rolling your eyes, throwing your hands up kind of humor, I think is very effective in sort of drawing people into you versus someone who's a scold or, or a lecturer. Um, so anyway, just what's your philosophy? You know, your, your Instagram yeah. is just like it's a chaos. barrage of, of chaos. chaotic memes. It's yeah. chaos. Uh, yeah. I'm not the only one managing it at this point. <laughs> okay. uh, but, uh, you know, like, you know, one of the things that I saw, especially around social justice issues, is I, I've been sort of lumped into that community. And I, I always just felt like, I think to your point, Andrew, earlier, just like having to say the right things and like, you know, fit this narrative, it just becomes overwhelming. And social media is inherently a toxic place. It's navigating a lot of politics. And I just got to this point where I got frustrated. And it's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't navigate this. This is not who I am. And this is also not the people that I come from. We don't sort of enforce these sort of ways of being in a very, if I'm going to say a Judeo-Christian values of like punishment and shame and blah, blah, blah. Like we don't operate like that. And I looked at that and I was like, how do we, how do, how do we operate as Navajo folks? We talk about the serious things when we talk about the serious things, but also an effective tool that we have in our traditions is the role of humor. Reservation Dogs on Hulu is a great example of sort of native humor across the board is like, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about serious issues, engaging with serious issues, but not taking them too seriously and finding the humor in all of that. You know, I think about the times that I spent with my family growing up. It's like, the amount of hardship that's there is incredible. Um, the amount of things that and challenges that my family's face are incredible. But one of the th sort of through lines through all of it is that 
people were laughing. People would laugh at sort of the impossibility or the ridiculousness of of their situation. And I think especially during COVID and all of the things that have been happening around civil rights in our community and in our country and, and racial issues, I think it's almost overwhelming. And it's like, how do you navigate that? How do you stay sane among all of that? And I think part of what I realized is like Native peoples, the reason why we've survived genocide and all these things is because of humor. And I think in in terms of what I try to bring to the table is like, yes, these are serious issues. They're important issues. But if we continue to live in this place of anxiety and fear and frustration, we're going to burn ourselves out. We're going to make ourselves sick and we're not going to be able to solve them. It's going to feel too overwhelming. But if we can just like see that, you know, in every situation, there's good and bad, there's serious and funny. It's not sort of this dichotomy that, you know, we can helpfully have the space and sort of the understanding and perspectives that to address these. And, you know, I would say in Navajo communities, the role of humor and the role that it serves is often to break tension. You know, like if you're in a serious meeting on the res, someone will eventually say a joke to kind of if the room if the seriousness of the room gets too much because if people are too tense and too serious it's impossible to have a conversation it's impossible to have that sort of vulnerability and that's the power of that tool um and and so and sort of what i try to do and sort of my presence online it's like yeah it's just like a lot of it's just silly humorous stuff but i also try to inject when necessary the more serious things and like talking about climate change talking about indigenous issues like kind of bringing these things on the table because it almost is like there's not going to be a weariness of like that's the only way i talk and there's going to be sort of a more there's going to be a greater receptivity for that more serious message when it comes and I think that's kind of where I try to land it. And, you know, in reality, it's like I couldn't be on social media if I I, I literally was going to quit like a few months, not a few months ago, like over a year ago. And I think that was like sort of my response of like, this is the only way I can continue to be in this without losing my mind. Um, so, yeah, it's we have one of my wild. favorite accounts yeah. um, to follow because it's always on point and it's always hilarious. Um, so I appreciate that. Well, the thing. You know, the thing is, is that it works because I, you know, I don't know how I ended up following it, but then I read your articles, you know, and if I had never clicked on it and started following it, I probably wouldn't. Or maybe because of our connections between, you know, other climbers that we know, I'd be here anyway, but it is, it is effective because then I'm like, oh, well, he wrote an actual article, you know, like I know that now that you're an academic and, and, you know, you contribute a lot, but at first, I was like, okay, who's this goofball? And then I'm like, wait, this goofball has a PhD. And then I was like, okay, you know, like, what's going then on? And I'm here? like, yeah. And then I was like, well, gosh, maybe he has something interesting to say. And I started reading your articles. And then, but then, you know, it's like one of those social media things where your name came up elsewhere, um, you know, with Tara Kersner. And, and I was just like, okay, so it's all coming back. Like, here's this guy that originally was just like, what is this? This is hilarious, you know? So it, it I mean, in the real world, I'm a, I'm like an example of someone who's uh, in your camp and reading the stuff you write because of the because of the social media, you know, hundred percent. That's that's good to hear. I I just yeah. I it's like literally feels like fucking chaos most of the time. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's part of what I like about it. So I mean, I think the the last point that you mentioned academia is like I've lived in a suit and living in that professional world for the past thirteen fourteen years of my life. 
I threw out my suits actually six months ago because I used to work in DC. But you know, um, I just I just kind of got sick of that stuffiness too around policy and the seriousness in which that world, you know, how seriously people in that world take themselves. And you know, and and also just you know, I think the the sort of thing I've learned from it is that you know, it's it's in this time, social movements are created through people. We're living in a very populist time. And if you can leverage social media, if you can leverage those things, it's almost way more effective than writing a journal paper right now. And I just, Mm -hmm. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. And I, I love sharing. I love educating and I love telling people and giving them perspectives that maybe they weren't aware of. And that I, I feel like that if the, if I can do that, it just feels like a win. Hey there. If you'd like to rise above your bottom feeder status and support the efforts, however feckless, of the runout, then subscribe today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. In addition to bolstering our self-esteem, you'll be privy to titillating bonus material like our recent interview with Joe Kinder just after he sent his new 515B and rifle, Kinder Cakes. Now the hardest climb in that notoriously steep and cryptic canyon. That's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast do it. As we all know, endlessly braying on about what a badass climber you are is a bad look. Here at The Runout, we believe the sweetest spray is when a pal does the spraying for you, while you look on sheepishly and mumble things like, stop, no, (laughs) it wasn't that big of a deal, dude. So today on The Runout, we are featuring a frothy new segment called Buddy Spray only open to submissions from our rope guns. On this installment of Buddy Spray, Zach Landy sprays down his buddy Dave by recalling the time that Dave became Rodeo King for a day. Hey, Chris and Andrew. This is Zach from Orange, Vermont. And I wanted to Buddy Spray all over you guys and the Run Out podcast about my friend Dave from Belayer Magazine. Dave lived in Vermont for a period of time and we were climbing in Marshfield, Vermont. And Dave was making a pink point attempt of this sport route there called Banches with Wolves. It's this kind of short but steep and pumpy 511 in which there's a kind of halfway up the route, a really good knee bar rest where you're grabbing a jug with one hand and there's a really good knee bar and you're there kind of resting and shaking and moving arms back and forth from the jug, resting up before you leave the knee bar and go up and grab these crimps up on the kind of steeper overhanging headwall. And from those crimps, you clip your next bolt. It's kind of a reachy clip. And so Dave left the knee bar all rested up, goes up to the crimps, pulls out rope, goes to clip, and he's coming up about six inches short of the carabiner. Drops the rope, the belayer reels it in, he down climbs back to the knee bar, shakes, rests, tries it again, goes up to the crimps, pulls out rope, reaches as high up as he can 
and it's still coming up a bit short. I guess whoever bolted this route wasn't thinking about a climber who isn't six feet tall. And so he down climbs back down to the rest. And instead of trying this one more time or taking or giving up, he starts pulling out an obscene amount of rope, tons of rope. He, the belayer is just feeding him out slack. And he starts whirling this huge loop of rope, rodeo clip style, from the knee bar rest, clips the bolt, amazingly, in about two or three whips of the rope, leaves the knee bar rest, grabs the crimps, the rope is already clipped, does the crux sequence, finishes the route. It was one of the most glorious ascents at Marshfield that I've seen. Kudos to you, Dave. That's my spray. Cheers, guys. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormicast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today.